Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, While You Still Have Me. It's based upon the lectionary readings for April 7, 2019. On this fifth Sunday in Lent, as our thoughts turn increasingly towards Jesus' suffering, John's Gospel offers us a brief respite. In fact, all four Gospels offer it. The moving story of a woman who kneels at a crowded dinner table, breaks an alabaster jar filled with priceless perfume, and dares to love Jesus in the flesh. Hands to feet, hair to skin. Each writer frames the event differently to suit his own thematic and theological concerns, but the story at its core remains one of the most sensual and powerful in the New Testament. If it doesn't give us pause during this Lenten season, we're not paying attention. In John's version, the woman is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and the newly resurrected Lazarus. The two sisters host a dinner party for Jesus, and it's during the festivities that Mary breaks open her jar, anoints Jesus with spikenard, a scented oil worth a year's wages, and wipes his feet with her hair. As the musky fragrance of the oil fills the house, Judas rebukes Mary for her misguided generosity. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? But Jesus silences him. Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It's a complicated story, not least because it raises thorny questions about poverty, piety, and stewardship. But it's also a rich story, full of treasures we can carry with us as we travel with Jesus towards Jerusalem. As I've pondered Mary's gesture of love this week, here are some of the treasures I've discovered. 1. The Treasure of the Body What happens between Jesus and Mary in this narrative happens skin to skin. Mary doesn't need to use words. Her yearning, her worship, her gratitude, and her love are enacted wholly through her body. Just as Jesus later breaks bread with his disciples, Mary breaks open the jar in her hands, allowing its contents to pour freely over Jesus' feet. Just as Jesus later washes his disciples' feet to demonstrate what radical love looks like, Mary expresses her love with a humble, physical act. Jesus, rather than shunning her intimate gesture, receives Mary's gift into his own body, with gratitude, tenderness, pleasure, and blessing. The holy sacraments here are skin, salt, sweat, and tears. The instruments of worship are perfumed feet and unbound hair. This is not an abstract piety of the mind. This is physical extravagance, what writer Mary Gordon calls a Sabbath of the skin. As I contemplate this treasure, I realize once again that I am the product of a culture that treats bodies with ambivalence and scorn. Most of the time, I see my own body as something to shrink, starve, conquer, or tame. I see its flaws so much more clearly than I see its God-ordained dignity and beauty. Rarely do I recognize my body as a vehicle for worship, love, hospitality, and grace. But Mary's gesture reminds me that if I won't see my own body as God's temple, if I won't embrace it as pleasing and delightful to its creator, I won't be able to embrace anyone else's. We are people of the Incarnation, called to break bread, share wine, shed tears, and wash feet. During this Lenten season, can we learn to see our embodied lives, our sensory lives, as fully implicated in our lives with God? Can we move past contempt, squeamishness, and fear, and offer Him our whole selves? 2. The Treasure of Beauty In Mark's version of the story, Jesus tells Mary's critics that her gesture is a beautiful thing, worthy of honor and remembrance. Over and against Judas's pragmatism, Jesus celebrates the fragrant and the delectable. 
In doing so, he gives us permission to savor the good gifts of life on this fragile but gorgeous earth, the pleasures of our senses, the beauties of nature, and the fruits of human creativity and artistry. I didn't grow up in a Christian tradition that put much stock in beauty, liturgical or other. If anything, beauty was viewed with suspicion as frivolous and distracting. Real piety resided in words like mission, purpose, belief, and faith. So I'll be honest, Judas's criticism gives me pause. Shouldn't we be sensible, spare, cautious? Shouldn't we be guided foremost by creeds, strategic plans, and measured principles? Aren't we supposed to balance our budgets? No, not always. Not at the expense of the life-giving and the beautiful. Is Mary's gift lavish? Yes. Is it useless in the practical-minded economy Judas brings to the table? Yes. Is it efficient, orderly, or logical? No. And yet Jesus cherishes and blesses it. As Mary Gordon puts it, in the moment of the washing of the feet, Jesus insists that beauty matters, that the aesthetic can take precedence over the moral. Think about it this way. In times of peril, pain, or trouble in your own life, what has comforted you the most? What has carried you through? The platitudes of a pragmatist, or the lavish and useless gestures of someone who loves you? 3. The Treasure of Now Judas responds to Judas's Jesus responds to Judas's criticism with a comment that might sound callous. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What is Jesus saying? That the poor don't matter? That we should accept poverty as inevitable and unfixable? I don't think so. In fact, many commentators argue that Jesus' reference here is to Deuteronomy 15.11, whose message about poverty and generosity is crystal clear. Quote, there will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you to be open-handed. In other words, a call to care for the poor is constant. It never ceases. So what is it about Mary's extravagance that merits Jesus' blessing? And what is it about Judas' criticism that earns Jesus' rebuke? Mary responds to the call of love in the moment, in the now. Knowing what Jesus is about to face, knowing that he's in urgent need of companionship, comfort, and solace, knowing that the time is short to express all the gratitude and affection she carries in her heart, Mary acts. Given the choice between an abstracted need, the poor out there, and the concrete need that presents itself at her own doorstep or on her own dinner table, Mary chooses the here and now. She loves the body and soul in front of her. In doing so, she ends up caring for the one who was denied room at the inn to be born, for the one who had no place to lay his head during his years of ministry, for the one whose body after death had nowhere to rest but a borrowed tomb. In other words, it is the poor Mary serves when she anoints Jesus' feet. Just as it is always Jesus we serve when we love without reservation what God places before us here and now. Lutheran minister Reagan Humber puts it this way, What won't always be with us is the opportunity to see God in whatever and whomever stands in front of us right now. The kingdom of God is here. Right now is the moment when God can break our hearts. The love of God is the grace of now. The treasure of the body, the treasure of beauty, the treasure of now. So much is given to us in this gospel story. What will we do with it all as we set our faces towards Jerusalem? Will we choose the measured risk or the extravagant gesture? In the presence of an overflowing heart, will we honor useless gestures as sacred to God or hold back in contempt and suspicion? What will guide us as we contemplate the cross, the theological platitude, or the fragrance of Christ? That jar we're hanging on to at all costs. When will we break it? The time is short. The cross awaits. Here's Jesus asking the hard question one more time. What will you do while you still have me?
For books this week, Dan reviews 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now by Jaron Lanier. In his little book called You Are Not a Gadget, Jaron Lanier contrasted the lifeless world of pure information with the rich mystery of being human. He defended human intelligence, judgment, and artistic creativity against the pseudo-wisdom of computer algorithms, search engines, and aggregators. Information technology, he argued, is necessarily a form of social engineering, and the results have been horrible. That manifesto considered dozens of examples, but they are really just different aspects of a singular big mistake. The deep meaning of personhood is being reduced by illusions of bits. His next book, Who Owns the Future?, examined the impact of big data on the economy. He called it a work of futuristic economics and speculative advocacy. Today, only a tiny minority of people benefit from the information economy. Those who keep the new ledgers, the giant computing services that model you, spy on you, and predict your actions, turn your life activities into the greatest fortunes in history. Lanier calls these siren servers. Google, Facebook, Amazon, and credit agencies are only the most obvious examples. They collect, correlate, and sell massive amounts of data about us. A click on the New York Times, for example, activates over a dozen of these spy agencies. Just how many siren servers are out there? My sense, writes Lanier, is that there are many dozens of unavoidable ones, plus thousands of others that will touch your life on occasion. It's no surprise then that Lanier's newest book goes a step further. It's about how we can remain autonomous in a world where you're under constant surveillance and are constantly prodded by algorithms run by some of the richest corporations in history, which have no way of making money except by being paid to manipulate your behavior. Thanks to sophisticated algorithms that parse massive amounts of big data, today's advertising is actually mass behavior modification, the purpose of which is addiction, not mere user engagement, which is a pathetically weak word. This behavior modification, Facebook has even bragged about it, is very effective, which is why companies like Google and Facebook sell our personal information to advertisers for vast sums of money. All of this is driven by a business model that Lanier calls bummer, behaviors of users modified and made into an empire for rent. The algorithms can soothe or savage us. They appeal to our worst instincts. They are powerfully addictive. They undermine virtues like truth, kindness, and empathy. We've made a bargain with the devil. Let us spy on you, collect your data, turn it into algorithms to modify your behavior, addict you to our site, and in return we will give you free stuff like music, social media, and search engines. Lanier urges us to quit these addictions right now. He himself does not participate in any social media. He's an important voice because of his impeccable geek cred. All four of his books have been bestsellers. For over 30 years, as a consummate insider, he has pioneered all sorts of computer technology. He admits that long ago he counted himself as one of Silicon Valley's merry band of idealists. In the 1980s, he was one of the inventors of virtual reality. See his 2017 memoir, Dawn of the New Everything. He's also an artist, scientist, musician, and composer who has a world-class collection of rare instruments. In 2010, Time Magazine named Jaron Lanier one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So, listen up, take action, delete now, and recover your freedom. For Movies This Week, Dan reviews The Last Man on the Moon. Many people of a certain age can name the first person to set foot on the moon, Neil Armstrong, the commander of the Apollo 11 mission on July 21st, 1969, with his now famous epigram, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. He and Buzz Aldrin spent two and a half hours exploring Tranquility Base. In fact, there have been exactly 12 people who have walked on the moon during the Apollo 11 through 17 missions, and no one has done it more than once. 
This made-for-Netflix biographical documentary examines the very last person to accomplish the feat, Jean Cernan, who, along with Jack Schmidt, landed on the moon on December 11, 1972, and did three moonwalks in three days. These were heady and patriotic days back in the beginning years of the space age. Some 530 million people watched the Apollo 11 event all over the world. In this film about Cernan, it's remarkable to see how he has a worldwide celebrity. He was a worldwide celebrity after the event. In a sort of sad historical footnote, since the end of NASA's space shuttle program, the only way for Americans to travel to the International Space Station has been to pay Russia for rides on its rockets. This film about Cernan was released at almost the same time as two other related films, Earthrise, 2018, a 30-minute op-doc by the New York Times that celebrates the 50th anniversary of the iconic photo of the Earth rising above the lunar surface that was taken on the Apollo 8 mission, and First Man, 2018, which tells the story of Neil Armstrong, played by Ryan Gosling. Lastly, for poetry, for this fifth Sunday in Lent, Those Who Carry, by Anna Kamienska. Those who carry pianos to the tenth floor of wardrobes and coffins, an old man with a bundle of wood limps beyond the horizon, a woman with a hump of nettles, a mad woman pushing a pram full of vodka bottles, they will all be lifted, like a gull's feather, like a dry leaf, like an eggshell, a scrap of newspaper. Blessed are those who carry, for they shall be lifted. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 7th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.